welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, man? Another busy week of NBA action on the court, news off of it, some unfortunate injuries. The Knicks are perfect since the trade. The Raptors are much improved. Mm. Yeah. The Jazz well, we... are the best team in basketball. There, There's a lot going on. Yeah, uh, we're not. I mean, we t- we touched on that trade on our last episode, but that is certainly looking like the win-win that we painted it as at the time. And I just got to say, because we did have a bit of a conversation about RJ Barrett talking about whether if the Raptors kind of had their druthers or if the Knicks had, they would have rather just have like a deadweight salary involved in that deal like if the Knicks just wanted to get off RJ's contract if RJ was actually viewed as a long-term piece by the Raptors or merely salary filler and so in light of that part of the conversation I do think it's worth pointing out that he has been incredible over the over these uh what's it been now six games yeah with the Raptors like truly unbelievable he's playing the best basketball of his career he's had stretches with the Knicks obviously and any Knicks fan I'll tell you where he shot the ball well like that streaky shooting was going for him put up some big numbers I don't know if he's ever had a stretch like this in terms of all around basketball like it's not just that the three-point shots falling because you know it's more catch and shoot it's like I think his defense for the most part has been really good and that's come and gone in his time in New York but for me the thing that stood out is his playmaking and like his not just his willingness to make the pass, but some of the passes he's actually seeing and making that I, quite frankly, didn't think he had in his bag. Yeah. And like, like if offhand, he, yeah. Live dribble skip passes to the yeah. weak side. No, it's uh, it's all good stuff. I mean, hopefully he keeps yeah. going. And in that Lakers game, nine for 10 from two point range, pretty yeah. much all on like self initiated drives. Just really impressive stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll see how long. It can last, but I think there are a lot of encouraging indicators just beyond the surface level numbers. And obviously yep. the shooting is going to come down, but uh, lots to be encouraged about, you know, from the Raptors perspective. And obviously from the Knicks perspective, they've just been pummeling teams. OG Ananobi is what, like a plus 800 in his first <laughs> yeah. five games with the Knicks, something like that. Sounds about right. They're loving him at the Garden. Um, you mentioned the Jazz. We're going to have to talk about them on a later episode. We just didn't have them in the agenda today because I wanted to devote maybe more time and detail to talking about what the hell is going on there and how this turnaround has taken place. But why don't you just quickly <coughs> tell me, because you tweeted this out, this factoid about uh, their last, I think, 16 games and the win profile, just as a quick and dirty way to illustrate how good they've been over the last month or so. Yeah. So after starting the season seven and 16, the Utah Jazz, after handing the Nuggets, by the way, their first loss against a sub 500 team last night, the Jazz are now 12 and four over their last 16 games with wins over Denver, Milwaukee, Philly, Dallas, Miami, and New York during that run. And shortly after I tweeted that, Opta stats, which is really great. I don't know if you saw this one, Wolfon. Oh, I did. You sent it to me. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I forget the things I send. Uh, that was, was going to sound really wrong. I was going to say I forget the things I send at 3 in the morning. But uh, I mean strictly basketball-related tweets. Um, Opta stats tweeted, 
There have been 524 instances in NBA regular season history of a team facing an opponent with a 650 plus winning percentage, minimum 30 games played, in three consecutive games. The Jazz are the only ones to win all three by double digits as they beat the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Nuggets by 11, 16, and 13, respectively. You could say the Sixers didn't have Embiid. I don't care. That is a ridiculous run for any team, let alone a team that started 7-60. and 60. Like, if a contender went on a run like that, we'd be talking about how impressive it is and, like, how much it just solidifies our belief in them as a contender. A team that started 7-16 and 16 did it. They're the reverse chats from last season, I'm telling you, man. Yeah. Cash sending me you up texts at three in the morning, but it's just to talk about how good the Jazz have been lately. <laughs> uh. um, I think the one maybe interesting question I have about this, and I don't think this is going to like factor into you. I, I, it's just purely fanciful theorizing on my part. But just because I am so invested in the idea of marketing going to OKC, I'm obsessed with that fit and how perfect it would be part of me wonders. And I, again, I don't think like this situation, their draft pick situation uh, in the coming draft is going to impact their decision-making on a player as important as Markinen, especially because it's considered to be a very weak draft class. But the fact that they have this, I think it's top 10 protected, right? And yeah. it's, it's actually OKC that owns it with a top 10 protection on it. Part of me is wondering if now they see themselves playing themselves out of that draft pick, if that doesn't give them a little bit more impetus to move on from Markinen now. Yeah. But again, I think that's uh, that's a little bit pie in the sky. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to ask you this question and we can bring it full circle because it will eventually tie in with one of the big topics or teams we want to talk about today. So I'll ask you it now and then depending on your answer, I'll tell you why I asked it, I guess, like 45 minutes from now. But... <laughs> Um, if you're the jazz and I know like the price for marketing should be high, but would you take a very good young player on his rookie scale contract and two firsts or even say three firsts? Would that be enough for you? Or are you looking for like a, a haul with picks or let's just say for now until I get into the specifics later, when we talk about the team, a very good young player and two to three firsts for marketing. Can you name me a very good? I guess, everyone has their sort of subjective. Okay, okay. I'm just gonna tell you, for, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this team later, but because you talk okay. about OKC, and in my mind, the team that I've been thinking of is Miami. Ha okay, Hawkes Jr. Yeah, two to three firsts, like two firsts and a swap, which is all they have left to trade from an, a draft pick standpoint, with salary filler. Obviously, do you do that if you're Utah? Because if you do, like everyone's talking about how much of a great fit he'd be in OKC, and he would be, but. You slot him between Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo in that front court, and you put a tremendous shooting big man who doesn't necessarily need the ball to dominate beside Bam Adebayo and between Butler and Bam. Hmm. The question uh, is, do they have enough? Yeah, so like, if I was Utah, I think I would bias more toward getting a picks and player package rather than just focusing on the picks. Like, If you can get, like you said, a very good young player. That's not just a player on his rookie scale deal. That's a literal rookie, a rookie with yeah. three years left on his rookie scale deal. Who looks so, great. Who looks really good. You know, I think 
from the heat perspective, it's interesting. Like I mentioned when we talked about this before, the reason I like his fit so much in OKC is that his biggest limitation is his lack of playmaking chops. And they just don't really need that in OKC. Like him being one of the best play finishers in the league is the selling point for them. And because they already have all this like elite shot creation, that's kind of all they need from him. You can sort of say the same thing about Miami, except that the way that Miami runs their offense, and again, we'll get into talking about this later, but they like to have playmaking at every spot on the floor. And they like to use every single player on the floor as a playmaker in some capacity. And I wonder if that would maybe make them a little bit lower on marketing than another team, just because they see that he is not necessarily the perfect fit in that kind of equal opportunity, multi-playmaker system. I'm not saying that would you know turn them off of the idea entirely. He's still a wonderful player who could be a, a hugely impactful piece for them. But for them, maybe there's not quite as much value, possibly, as there would be for a different team. But let, let's get into the meat of this here. You mentioned uh, some unfortunate injuries. Tyrese Halliburton down for a couple weeks with a, was that a hamstring strain, I think. Yeah. Um, we're not going to get into talking about that one, but we are going to talk about John Morant, who's done for the season with a torn labrum. And uh, look, I do think there are some potential silver linings here, but it's a shame for the Grizzlies. It's a shame for us as basketball fans who had, you know, just gotten a taste of having John Morant back in our lives. And the Grizzlies were playing some good ball. They were six and three with him in the lineup. He looked pretty much the same as he ever did, averaging 25, six and eight on 57% true shooting. And um, like the, the West is already looking like kind of a bloodbath, especially, at, you know, the fight for like those last playing spots. Phoenix is in eighth right now at 19 and 18. And the Warriors are in 12th at 17 and 20, just two games behind them. And the Grizzlies are three games behind that. So even with Jaw back, it felt like a bit of a long shot that they would get back into that play-in mix. Given like not just the distance, but all the teams they'd have to leapfrog to get back in there. But it certainly felt plausible, you know, even, oh, yeah. even with how thin they are in the front court. But I think they're just, th- this is just a season from hell for them, right? Like they were already so far behind the eight ball to start with Clark and Adams being out for the year and jaw missing the first 25 games. Then on top of that, smart missed like 20 games. Kennard missed like 25 games. They're like signing guys off the scrap heap to play big minutes for them. Starters minutes in the case of Bismack Biombo. And, you know, I, I guess you could say just because their core pieces are young and locked in for the next few years, this isn't as damaging for them as it might have been for another team. But a lost season is a lost season. And yeah. that is what this looks like now for the Grizzlies, in spite of the fact that they are 2-0 and since Jaw went down with wins over the Suns and Mavs. It, it, it's, it feels like a lost year. And I nothing's ever a truly lost year, which is like we can get into talking again about the silver linings and how this might maybe be a bit of a blessing in disguise. But... I mean, okay, so like one aspect of that we can look at is like Marcus Smart, right? He's got two years left on his deal after this one. But this like this is a prime age season for him that they're essentially getting 
not that much out of from a results perspective. And they gave up a ton to get him. You know, Tyus Jones, the pick that turned into Marcus Sasser, and the Warriors pick in the coming draft that I've been talking about for a while is like one of the most undervalued assets in the league that is now looking like it's going to make the Portland Trailblazers very, very happy. And so to lose one of those seasons of smart, again, not lose, but like for it to amount to not a playoff spot is kind of tough. So yeah, it it sucks. And it'll suck to not have the Grizzlies really being a factor in the playoff push down the stretch. But how, how are you feeling about all this? Yeah, it sucks, man. It's terrible. Like you mentioned that it was probably still a long shot that they could get back in that plan mix. Sure. Like probability wise, like statistically. Yeah. But they absolutely had a chance. Like they were six and three with jaw in the lineup and they looked every bit that good with him on the court. If you look at the nine games they played too, I think seven of the nine were against teams at the very least in play in positioning in either conference. The only two games they played against non quote unquote postseason position teams right now are the Raptors and Spurs. Ja, to be honest with you, was playing some of the best basketball of his career. And that's saying something for a guy that has been as good as he has been in his career. Like, just immediately uplifted that team. He brought, like, a an energy and a vibe back to that team. Even if you watched Grizzlies games, I mean, we, we weren't there in Memphis. But when it would be a home game that Ja was in, like, just everything about it. The sound of the crowd. every Like, there was hope again, right? Because it felt like they were playing for something. It no longer felt perhaps like a lost season because there was something to look forward to. Hey, we keep playing this well. We have a chance to get in the play. And if we get in the play and we've got jaw, we've got a chance. And from there, like there was hope again. And all of that is vanquished basically immediately. Even though, as you mentioned, they've won their first two games without him. I don't think anyone expects that to continue or for them to be able to make up ground without him, like the necessary ground. So it, it really does suck. And I get what you're saying about how there's no, you know, like truly there's no such thing as a lost season. There are silver linings to be found. Heck, you can look at the fact that like Desmond Bain is really getting a chance to spread his wings. And even though he didn't quite hit the numbers and the efficiency that I threw out there for him in my bold prediction with Ja out of the lineup, I really don't think you could have asked for much more from Desmond Bain so far in trying to pick up the offensive slack while Ja's out. And I think in the long run, this will have been a positive for Memphis from a Bain perspective, because I do think his game has expanded and he's really stepped up. But those silver linings only go so far. And a lost season, when you are in your window of at worst fringe contention, stings that much more. Because as we know, especially in this era of shorter contracts, salary cap, parity, like that window doesn't stay open as long as everyone assumes it will, even when you have a young star. So to have one of those seasons, you know, essentially over before it even really began other than one glimmer of hope for nine games. It's, it really sucks, man. Yeah. I, I just want to say, I mean, I watched that game that they played against the Mavs and I had a blast because <laughs> they've got some of these players that I do really enjoy watching. Like Vince Williams jr. In particular, what a treat. Just, he's gonna be a, I, I think an all nobody team star this year. Oh, I can't wait for that. I mean, he, and he's not going to be a nobody for long. Like he, to me, is ultimately going to slide into like that Dylan Brooks role. Like he looks to me capable of being a top shelf perimeter stopper for years to come. And they just gave and, him a guaranteed contract now. They waived B- yeah. Bismack Biombo to do it. Yeah, well well deserved. And I think it, it, there are all these similarities to Brooks in terms of 
the swagger and the rugged physicality that he plays with, you know, right down to him being like one of the most foul prone guards in the league. But also he brings all these other kind of skills where he's actually a pretty sharp passer and he's an incredible rebounder for someone his size. Uh, I think he's like six, four, but he's got, I want to say like a seven foot wingspan and he can really get off the ground and he just has a great nose for the ball. I think Roddy has started to look a lot better. Zaire Williams has actually looked better recently. So I think, yeah, those guys are going to get more of a chance to spread their wings. You mentioned Bain, who will get to continue developing his on-ball creation chops. Um, And by the way, like their backcourt, like Bain and Smart is still a pretty damn good backcourt. Like that's a backcourt you could go to the playoffs with. It's just in the frontcourt, obviously, they're still extremely thin, but... You know, Jaron will get a chance to to keep honing his self-creation craft. And then I think because they're out of it and they don't really have an incentive to to push very hard the rest of the way, I think they'll probably look to flip some pieces at the deadline, right? Like Luke Kennard has a $14 million team option for next year. So that feels like somebody who could be really valuable as a trade chip, you know, maybe not bringing back a first rounder or anything, but to potentially get a sharpshooter like that for the rest of the season and then be able to like, you know, either keep him at a reasonable figure or clear his money off the books. I think that'll be appealing. And then a couple of younger guys who I think could move to like John Conchar and maybe even Xavier Tillman. I think they could, they could look to be a seller. They're going to get another high lotto pick. Uh, If we're looking on the bright side, there are definitely some positives that we can't find in all of this, uh, negativity and you know especially when you consider that the season seemed to be cursed from the start and that they were going to be hard pressed to really do anything meaningful given the the front court absences plaguing them already yeah and if you're the Grizzlies if you are a team you know in that window of contention who suffers through a season like this that's how you have to look at it right you have to look for the silver linings you have to look at how you can make the most of it and take advantage of it whether that's on the trade market or through the draft or whatever we can say it sucks, but the team, like from a fun, from a front office perspective and all that, obviously can't afford to be walking around like "woe is me, uh, this sucks." It it happens. Not the nature, obviously, of Jaws' first absence isn't one of those like "oh, it just happens" things in in basketball or in pro sports. But the injury is, and now they just got to kind of figure it out. And this season's lost from like a one loss postseason perspective, but it doesn't have to be lost in the big picture. Yeah. It does feel like it probably stings that much more because weirdly last year wound up feeling almost like a lost season as well after it got off to such a promising start and then just went completely off the rails for a variety of reasons. Like obviously the jaw stuff, but also the Clark and Adams injuries. Like that's, that's two years in a row now where it feels like, yeah, this could have been a window of contention where you didn't really wind up actually having a chance to make the most of it. That hurts. But I think we can move on from that and talk about uh, a team that is moving in the opposite direction. And that's the LA Clippers, who have been maybe the hottest team in basketball over the last month and just locked up Kawhi Leonard to what I think is a fantastic extension. Like, yeah, good for Kawhi because it's fully guaranteed and he's getting $152 million. But for the Clippers, three years, 152. 
it's 52 for next season, which I believe is Kawhi's max for next year. But then there are, it's flat at 50 million for the two years after that. So no raises. So it's actually not even a max deal and getting him on that term, just three years, I think balances out like them guaranteeing the money for a player who's obviously very injury prone, making it sort of a win-win. But I, I just think that's a coup for the Clippers to, to clear this hurdle out of the way. You know, obviously they're, they were looking at going into the off season with their three best players, all being free agents and all of those guys basically approaching their mid thirties or in their mid thirties. And now they've gotten this one out of the way with a short term extension that I think, um, they got to be really happy about. So there, there are reports also that like they're turning their attention to PG. That's the next order of business, getting an extension done with him. I'm assuming they're talking to Harden about something similar. Although is he, he's limited by the, because he got traded. Like he can only get two years. If he, yeah, I think if he wants the off season, right. If he wants the longer new contract, he'll have to wait till the off season. Um, um, but yeah, look, the Kawhi thing, it's a no brainer, obviously for the team even with the injury history, like as we're seeing so far this year, if anyone even needed a reminder when he's healthy and he's been healthier this year than he's been in like six years, he's capable of being the best player on the court, no matter who else is on the court. And uh, that's the kind of player that, you know, not just a floor raiser, but like a, a genuine like championship window opener. We know Kawhi is that guy and they've now locked that guy up for another three years and to be honest with you and it like maybe it sounds weird to say about a guy who has had the injury history he's had and who has I mean we haven't really heard much about it since but like at the time it was considered a degenerative issue in his quad or in his leg so this might seem weird to say about a guy with that history but if you just look at like his game and the way he plays and the way he does the things he does you could see a guy that could age gracefully because of the shot, the efficiency with which he does things. And I don't just mean score, but like the efficiency with which he moves and does everything on the court where like, it sounds weird to say he does it with like minimal effort because that's not what I mean. Obviously the guy puts forth a tremendous economy of movement is maybe the way to put it. Right. That's a great way to put it. Like there's no wasted movement. I know other people have said that too, right? In, In any regard, just like there's no wasted dribbles, just like there's no wasted, like just... You add it all up and it should be a guy, especially at his size with that strength that should age gracefully if, you know, the degenerative issue and, and the previous injuries don't come back to bite him. Um, and yeah, like you get Kawhi locked up and you'd imagine Paul George will be soon too. And now you're looking at a situation where like you're going to stay at worst competitive if those guys are healthy and at best championship contenders um, for most of the way through the duration of all those picks that you're owing to acquire those guys to begin with. Um, and if like you're I, talking about that stuff, about keeping him healthy, the economy of movement, all that stuff, I, I really think that having Harden there is helping that and going to continue to help yeah. that. We talked about it on the show. I wrote about it, but just like there's so much less self-creative stuff for him. There's so much less friction in terms of like what he has to do to get to his spots and get to efficient shots. And I think that to me, they have proof of concept now that yes, actually getting an elite lead playmaker in here is going to make a ton of sense for this group. I know a lot of people would say, no, that's not proof of concept. Proof of concept will be when they get through the season healthy and then show they can do it in the playoffs. But 
I, I think it benefits them to get this done now. And they had the closest thing that they were going to get to proof of concept right now. And I don't think that they should have waited any longer to get this done if this was a deal on the table. So no, absolutely. I don't know. To me, it's wins all around. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, like I was saying, like even I know it's not the biggest thing or like top of mind, but I I do think it's somewhat of a big deal that they've now got. And again, I, I'm going to assume Paul George is going to get locked up fairly quickly too, that they'll have those guys and they'll have that window of, like I said, at worst competitiveness, at best championship contention through the duration of the picks that they owed to get these guys, right? Like, okay, now if you include Harden now, they actually owe outright picks or swaps, I think through 2029, but the original, the trade to get PG, which is a, which which was essentially, you know, the trade to land PG and Kawhi had them owing picks outright and swapped through 2027. And now Kawhi is extended through 2027. Paul George probably will be soon too. So like that matters, right? Because yeah, they're going to be away. What a luxury for them to have Zubach locked up on that ridiculously reasonable deal. He's only got one year left after this one, but still to have him under contract for next year at like $11 million. He's a good center, man. Like I think one of the most underrated centers in the league, him and Harden already have fantastic pick and roll chemistry. And he's straight up just one of the best rim protectors in the league. Like statistically, he protects the rim as well as almost anybody. And so to have that certainty as well, like I'm not going to go so far as to call this a big four, but like they, like he's essential to what they're going to be trying to do this year and next year. And so to have the cost certainty with him as well, I think uh, makes this picture that much clearer for the Clippers. Yeah. And Zubac, Agreed he's been an underrated center for a couple of years now, but he's getting better too. Like he's gotten better this year on both ends of the court. And with respect to the contract, like especially in this cap climate and the way that the constraints will kick in in the next year or two, having a guy who gives you surplus value on the court compared to his contract when you've got multiple superstar level players on max contracts, when you've got the um, more punitive tax coming in like it's guys like Zubach on contracts like that and I know look for the player it's not great when we're talking about him you know being worth more on the court than his contract is but if you're talking about it from a team building perspective having those guys when you're in your window of contention with money tied up with superstars and the tax coming in like that is such a boon for teams like the Clippers and uh yeah and Obviously on the court, like I said, I think he's getting better and I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done on both ends of the court this season. I also just wanted to say Harden is not actually extension eligible, I just realized, because he only signed what was a two-year deal um, a couple off-seasons ago. So that he's going to free agency, but I would imagine that conversations are happening about what his next deal is going to look like already. So, yeah. You know what I want to mention too, because I like obviously, look, it's been you know almost five years now since Kawhi and PG landed there, and everyone knows about the trade and how much draft capital they gave up. In addition to Shea Gilgis Alexander, who's now you know basically a perennial MVP candidate, and when you take the whole body of work into account, the last few years when you include games missed and games played and all that, you can make a pretty strong argument that for the last season and a half, Shea has been the best player of these three start to finish between him, Kawhi, and Paul George. So I get all that. Which is crazy. It is. It's insane. But my, but what I was going to say is, and all of that, and listen, 
I've had, you know, my share of laughs at the Clippers' expense in the playoffs, and I reserve the right to continue to do so if they shit the bed in the playoffs again, especially now that they have James Harden. But the point of all this is to say that, like, you can laugh all you want. You can do the what-ifs and what could have been and all that. But as we all know, like I said earlier, the trade for Paul George way back when was essentially to also acquire Kawhi Leonard. And, like, say what you will about, oh, well, if they hadn't done that and they'd have Shea right now. But they wouldn't be in any better position. And that is not a knock on Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who I've already said is a perennial MVP candidate, I think is unbelievable and is one of the, like, you can count on one hand how many guys in the world you would rather start a franchise with right now. But what I'm trying to say is, like, here we are five years later, and we're talking about Kawhi now being extended through 2027 and Paul George likely to follow, and they now have James Harden. And when those two guys have been healthy and on the court, They've played mostly like a contender. They look awesome this year. So, like, for the people that still kind of harp on what could have been or, like, you know, everything they gave up, it's like, okay, even if they had never made that deal and if they had just gone forward with Shea and Shea turned into the player he is right now and maybe they used some of that job capital to get someone else, like, guess where they'd be? They'd be right here with a couple of stars maybe still a piece away if they didn't use more draft capital to get a guy like Harden. The, the, but what I'm trying to say is they'd be in basically the same spot, just their best player would be a bit younger. But they wouldn't be any closer to a title likely. Like It's it's not like yeah. this franchise sold its soul to be like a middle-of-the-pack team. No, I mean, I think that every single year they've had these two guys, the upside has been championship. You know, I... I wouldn't necessarily quibble with the process. It's not like even the Thunder expected Shea to turn right. into what he's turned into. It's more just like the results that have of been course. unfortunate because they've had, you know, you talk about lost seasons, right? With the Grizzlies. I think the lost seasons have hurt a lot more for the Clippers given everything that they have sent out the door in order to put this team together and the shorter runway that they have because of the ages of their star players. So, that's what's made it hurt is just that they haven't had these guys on the court at the same time when it matters most very often. Um, hopefully that'll happen this year. And the last thing I okay. wanted to mention, sorry, just before I know we're going to get to break, but uh, because we are, you know, talking about re- revisiting history here. The one thing I'll add is that like for everything people could say about, you know, the injury history of these guys at the time the deal was made, Paul George was coming off a third place finish in MVP voting and had missed no more than seven games in seven of the previous eight years. So like it wasn't that much of a gamble to get that guy plus the reigning finals MVP, even with his injury history. Yeah. And again, I'm knocking on wood here, knocking on my wooden desk in my home office here, but PG has missed two games this year. Kawhi's missed four. So Here's hoping that that can continue. Let's take the break there and uh, we'll come back and I want to talk about the Miami Heat. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, since we're talking about big extensions, maybe we can talk about the one Eric Spolster just got. Eight years, 120. Well-deserved for, I think, 
unanimously the best coach in the biz. I, I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about the extension itself other than, yeah, go get that money, Spo. And uh, I thought we could use that as an opportunity to check in on the Heat and what they've been up to because I think it's just been another Spolstra masterclass so far this season. Yeah. And I know we were doing a lot of history, uh, not even revisionist history, just kind of looking back at popular claims and opinions of the time when we were talking about the Clippers. But it is funny to think about where Eric Spolstra is now, widely regarded and rightfully so as one of, if not the best coach in the business right now, has now been rewarded with an extension that makes him the highest paid coach in the business. And you think back to, uh, what, 13, 14 years ago when the Heat started that first big three season, nine and eight, whatever it was, LeBron kind of bumps him going at the timeout and all the talk is like, this guy's not cut out for this. He wasn't ready for this kind of star power in his locker room. Pat Riley needs to come down again from the front office and take over this team. And Pat Riley and the Miami Heat organization say, no, Eric Spolster is our guy because we believe in him. We think he's a great coach and we're not going to trade him. And, I'm sorry, we're not going to fire him or act uh, without reason here. We're not going to make any rash decisions. And this is why you don't. When you know that you have a great coach. Now, obviously, there's not a lot of Eric Spolsters hanging around, but it is a reminder that if a team believes in a head coach, truly believes in him as a great coach, let a guy ride out the adversity that comes, you know, year to year and with star teams or whatever. And and yeah, here Eric Spolster is once again absolutely maximizing and then some the talent at his disposal. I just wonder, okay, is there like a particular coach you have in mind right now who's maybe facing some of that adversity who you would caution against cutting bait on too early? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, look, like there's stuff about Darvin Ham. I'm not saying he's going to be exposed. Like, honestly, there wasn't a specific coach that came to mind. Um, but there's been times in, you know, throughout history in sports, not just in basketball, where you can look at it and be like, what? Them firing that guy made no sense. Like, he's not the problem here. Like, I had hope for him. I thought he did a good job. And yeah. They just they Michael cut. Malone, right? I mean... Perfect example in Sacramento, yeah. yeah. And then, I don't know if there were calls to have him fired early in his Denver tenure, but it felt like his seat was maybe getting a little bit warm before things really took off there. Yep. And as I've said so many times, I love that they stuck with Michael Malone because... I think he grew with that team on the job. Like he got better just like they did. Yeah, that's a perfect example, actually. Um, yeah. But yeah, you talk about the job Eric Spolster's doing this season. I mean, first of all, I hate myself for coming into this season saying this was the year that the Heat would fall off and not quite be in the mix. You know, I never lost faith in the power of Heat culture, but I did lose faith in what this team had after not trading for Damian Lillard. And it's like, well, of course, Jaime Hackes Jr. is a guy and then some. Of course, he's showing poise beyond his years and already looks like a, an above-average player, maybe an above-average starter as a rookie. Of course, Duncan Robinson has bounced back and then some with a more refined and revamped game. Of course, they're 21-16 and 16 despite Jimmy Butler missing 13 games, Bam Adebayo missing 11, Caleb Martin missing 17. Like, you look at the lineups they're throwing out a lot of these nights without some... You know, without at least one of those guys, usually multiple. You look at the numbers, it's like, okay, they're basically middle of the pack on both ends, which makes sense given the absences I mentioned. You know, like it's not like they've been particularly lucky in close games and they're 10 and 8 with a plus 1.1 net rating in clutch time. Like, you know, 
in and around average, which is what you'd expect for teams in clutch time or what you should expect. Their third and three-point percentage, they're smack dab in the middle and opponent's three-point percentage. In fact, they're actually giving up 0.4 more made threes than they're making per game. But here they are at 21 and 16, just absolutely squeezing every last drop that they can out of this group. And it is, as usual, a full credit obviously to the players and the, and the whole heat culture thing, but to Eric Spolstra, who is a big part of heat culture. And this is one of the things I say every year when people have the heat culture talk and I kind of like tongue in cheek, you know, talk about how much I actually believe in it. But a lot of the things I end up saying are like, yeah, guys, a big part of heat culture is they're in a glamour market that often ha- like attracts a superstar. So they, they often have a game changing star and they've got arguably the best coach in the business. And if you go in and they, you know, usually have a solid defense, like if you go into the playoffs with a superstar level player and arguably the best coach in the game, you're going to have a shot. Yeah. So really quickly before I uh, piggyback on everything you just said about Miami, Marcus Smart, right ring finger injury out for approximately six weeks. Oh my God. So yeah. Vince Williams, it's your time, man. Let's yep. <laughs> let's see how far we can uh, we can push this thing with the zombie Grizzlies. That's tough, and I think I don't know if this is actually how he suffered the injury or if he just somehow exacerbated it doing this. But when I saw it happen, it looked like he injured it, like dislocated the finger while celebrating a three pointer that he hit. I thought you were going to say while well, flopping, but that. Well, that would have been too perfect, but yeah, somehow be worse. Well, he was doing some like jog. exaggerated three point celebration, and then immediately like looked down at his finger and was like, "Uh oh," and went to the bench. So oh maybe he'd well, already injured it, and that just like was the the straw that broke the fingers back or whatever. But broke the fingers back. or the camel's finger? I don't know. Um, didn't Jaw hurt his shoulder in a workout? He didn't hurt it in a game. I think he hurt it in a workout. Just just bad juju, man. Yeah. I don't know. Somebody somebody hexed the Grizzlies this year. It was John Moran. Adam Silver or I'm trying to think who else people on the Grizzlies have wrong. The the Indiana Pacers travel <laughs> traveling party. <laughs> that just some weird voodoo. Don't point yeah. lasers at people. Yeah. Mall security guard put a hex on the Morans. Um anyway, yeah, not not stuff we should be joking about, but Obviously a tough season in Memphis. Okay, Miami. So, yeah, like you mentioned, they're they're 21 and 16, kind of right in the thick of that bunched up that middle Eastern class. Conference thickness. <laughs> yes. Uh, four through eight in the East, all separated by one game. Uh, you've got the Pacers and Knicks both sitting there at 22 and 15. Cleveland at 21 and 15, Miami and Orlando both at 21 and 16. And actually the like the Sixers who have been missing Embiid for a bunch of games here recently are only two and a half games clear of Miami and Orlando. So it's two and a half games separating three and eight, one game separating four and eight. And the Heat, if they can ever get healthy, have as good a chance of any of those teams at, at getting up into that top four. Although the Knicks are looking pretty formidable right now, but Jimmy, what he, he had like a calf injury. I think he missed a, a few games and then he came back for like half a game and then hit the shelf again with a foot injury. Yeah. 
so they're they're doing this without him. They're seven and six without him on the season. They have the record that I mentioned, despite being, I think, second behind Memphis in total man games lost to injury this season. And man, I just think it's really remarkable how they continue to find ways to win. I think, you know, assertive Bam Adebayo has been a huge reason behind that. He has definitely carried the offense for long stretches. You know, Hero has been really good. He's kind of been their their number one scoring option. And I think he's risen to the occasion and been pretty solid, even though he's like allergic to the rim and the free throw line still. Uh, what he's able to do as a, a shooter and playmaker from, you know, the in-between spaces and behind the arc is still super important for them. Duncan Robinson, dude, this this is one of the craziest seasons I've ever seen in terms of you had a, a fairly one-dimensional role player who was unbelievable in that one dimension, but because of how limited he was in these other areas and because of the volatility, frankly, of that one skill where shooting can go sideways for half a season, you know, he was out of the heat rotation for the second half of last year, reappeared in the playoffs, played some big, important minutes for them, and then comes back this year playing the best basketball of his life, not only shooting the absolute shit out of the ball, but showing suddenly this dribble drive game, these really refined playmaking chops. They're having him like run primary pick and roll some of the time. You saw him do some of that stuff with Bam in the past with the two-man game, but really it was just like dribble handoffs where he would come off and if two guys went with him, he could make the pocket pass to Bam. But now it's like he's starting possessions with the ball in his hands and like running pick and roll, still getting two on the ball because he's a genuine pull-up threat and making the right read seemingly every time. It can be a pocket pass or like if he's got, if he's drawing closeouts and driving, he's making like really smart kickouts. He's been unbelievable. Kevin Love has been unbelievable. Like they've been searching kind of for an answer at backup center, been playing a lot of love at five. And honestly, defensively, he's held up pretty okay. Despite his sort of limitations in that regard, he's such a smart positional defender, such a good rebounder that they've been they've been decent with him playing the five defensively, and then he opens up so much for them offensively with his spacing and his ability to be a playmaker at the top of the floor in like a lot of the same delay actions that they run for Bam. And I, I guess you could just say, in spite of some of the limitations in terms of like individual off-the-bounce creation, there is a ton of passing skill on this team. And there's not one elite passer in the bunch I don't think there's just like six or seven really good passers and now somehow Duncan Robinson is part of that mix uh so it's actually very cool to watch and um you know you mentioned Hawkes who I think is like I don't know what what is Jaime Hawkes's upside to you because to me he's like very much a jack of all trades where he can do a little bit of everything He's not exactly elite at any one skill. And I don't know if I see him like getting to an elite level at any one thing. I don't know where that leaves him in terms of his sort of long-term projection. But again, right now he's filling so many gaps for them because of the number of different things that he can do. Yeah, I think if I'm trying to project him forward, I just see a guy that should be like I was like an above average starter on a really good team for a long time. And you can say, well, that's not that doesn't sound like you're that high on it, but like that's a really good player. Like when teams draft guys, especially at, you know, in the range 
Miami drafted Hawkes Jr. If you can tell them that we'll give you a very good above average starter for X amount of years that can play that role on really good teams because he's smart and he knows what he's doing and all this stuff, they'll take that. So I don't know, like maybe I don't see all-star in his future, but I definitely see like very, very important piece of very, very good teams for a long time. He's that good. Yeah. And again, and he can just do, he can incredible. do everything, right? Like they'll have him, like he can handle and they'll have him initiate from time to time, run, pick and roll. He can play as the role man in those situations. He can cut, he can operate out of the post. He's very good in transition as like the handler or the trailer. He can defend pretty competently. Like he really just is doing a little bit of everything for them. It's been super impressive and not to be overshadowed. Nikola Jovic, I think, is showing them a lot as well. You know, like another guy who can really pass, who can make plays off the bounce. And this is like the thing that the Heat do, right? They'll just, they kind of just throw their guys into the deep end and say, show me what you can do. And I think in this day and age, you hear a lot of coaches talk about, well, positional designations are not dead necessarily, but they don't mean what they used to mean. And we like to think of everybody in our offense as being a point guard or can be a point guard. And that's a really nice idea in theory that some teams can execute better than others. I, I just don't think anybody actually does it like the heat. Like it is the closest thing that I have ever seen to a true equal opportunity offense where they have a different initiator, almost every possession, like one possession it's hero and then it's Lowry and then it's, Robinson or it's Bam or it's Jovic like they'll have Jovic initiating and running inverted pick and roll or Hawkes Josh Richardson like it really is just somebody different it feels like every time down and uh, I, I just think regardless even of how effective it is which it's been it's been pretty damn effective uh, it's just really cool and fun to watch I think and again a, a, a tribute to Eric Spolstra and not only his X's and O's and his tactical brilliance, but just the way that he always empowers his players and gets the most out of them. So do you think there's enough here? Like, I mean, as a guy who's been in the past, a disbeliever of some of the mm. things that he did. Enough done, here to what? To win. Like win a championship? Yeah. No. Like, exactly. And I, I don't either. And I mean, look, that is why. I mean, the Heat always are, but that's why, especially after coming up empty in the uh, Dame sweepstakes, and having the season they're having and, and still being in the middle of their competitive window, I think that is why the Heat are a team that everyone's going to be looking at over the next month. And we're like, we started this show or not quite started it, but, you know, I brought up that marketing deal and whether it's a guy, you know, a star like marketing, whether it's more of a star level shot creator or something close to it, they need that one more piece to really get over the hump. You know, which for them, getting over the hump is winning the title because they've made the finals two times in the last, what, four seasons. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the kind of player that they perhaps target between now and the deadline and also what they're willing to give up in terms of the players on their roster. Like, I'm not talking about that draft capital, which, um, like I mentioned with Markin, and they can do, I think, two picks and a swap. But basically what it is is they can do a 2027 swap and then after that, they can trade any of their own picks. So, for example, they could trade 2028 20, and 2030 uh, and swap 27 and 29 if they wanted to. So the, the the draft capital, for the most part, is there. 
And they're, you know, obviously between Hakez, even a Jovic, there's young talent there as well. There's some salary filler with a guy like Lowry's contract. Like the pieces are there for this team to make a pretty significant, if not, you know, not a Damian Lillard level player, but a very significant in-season acquisition. And uh, I think they need to if they want to win the title, but that shouldn't take away from what they've done so far this season and, and what Spolstra has once again gotten out of this group. Yeah, I, I'm not even thinking about that right now. I'm just thinking I'm enjoying watching them right now while simultaneously hoping that they can get healthier yeah. uh, and see what they can do at full strength. But uh, part of my enjoyment of watching them recently has just been watching them patch all these holes and just sort of jerry-rig this offense uh, with what I thought would have been spare parts. But they're plugging them in and they're making it work like they always seem to do. Hopefully Jimmy's able to get back soon. I do think if we're talking trades, like the, you know, the, the Lowry expiring contract is definitely going to be a piece to watch, even though when he's been healthy and I think he's on the shelf now also with a finger injury, but when he's been healthy, he's been really effective just doing yeah. Kyle Lowry shit, even though he's got like uh, for the first month of the season, he had like a single digit usage rate. I think now it's climbed up to, you know, 12 or 13%, but he is, um, not the most active participant in the offense anymore, but he still just makes winning plays and is such a smart player and a great connector for them that I don't think they should necessarily just be looking to move him for the sake of moving him. Yeah. But if they're going big game hunting, then yeah, his contract is almost certainly going to be a big part of that package. So You mentioned the spare parts that they've had to uh, rely on. I'll simply say that there are no such thing as spare parts for the hardest working, best conditioned, most professional, unselfish, toughest, meanest, nastiest team in the NBA. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I would love to leave off there, but I do just want to... I do want to give like a, a more of a thorough shout-out to Bam because I feel like we don't do it enough and a lot of what he does gets taken for granted. But A, like... I mentioned off the top, but him being as assertive as he's been offensively, I feel like is what we have wanted to see from him for so long. But man, just his malleability defensively, we know what he can do as a switch big. And I just think it's interesting. He's in this completely different defensive role now where he is really primarily playing drop uh, because they don't really trust the defenders around him enough to hold down the fort when he's getting pulled out to the perimeter, especially with Jimmy out. Like they're making more of a concerted effort to keep him close to the basket. Also without Jimmy, they've gone back to playing a ton of zone and that will also, you know, if they're doing the two, three, which is what we usually see Bam's going to be on the back line close to the basket. And I think he's just continually showing that no matter what the coverage is, he's going to be able to anchor it and keep the floor extremely high at that end. So I just want to commend him for what's been an incredible season. I'm sure we'll start talking about our all-stars soon, but I think if we were doing them now without thinking about it too hard or, or like going through a list of names, I think he'd have to be in that conversation. hundred uh, percent. Okay, Cash. We did want to talk a little bit about the Suns and sort of early returns on their big three now that they're all healthy and playing together. Again, knocking on wood because <laughs> who knows how long that's going to last. I think... You know, because we're already getting close to the hour mark and we have a real opportunity here to get this done in, you know, under 80, maybe well under 80. And also just because there isn't that much material to work with, 
I would like to try and blow through this in like 10 minutes tops. Yeah. So because you suggested this as a topic, I will throw it to you. Early uh, thoughts, takeaways from the Suns' big three. Well, okay. On one hand, you can say, well, it's worked pretty swimmingly when they've all been on the court and they've all been healthy. Now, obviously, the caveat there is that they've, they've only started six games together and one of those six Beal left after less than five minutes. So they've only really played five games together. But 108 minutes together with all three of them on the court, 120.7 offensive rating equivalent of a number three offense. 112.7 defensive rating equivalent to a number nine defense plus eight per 100 overall. But the supporting cast, the depth, the def- defense, like all of it is so flawed and lacking that even despite that, even in those games, when all three guys play and despite the fact that when all three have been on the court, they've been you know, pretty damn good in the six games they've played together. They're still two and four because again, of all the, deficiencies elsewhere like two and four their one good win with all three guys in the lineup was over the magic who were obviously a good team their other win was against the hornets and then you look at their four losses throttled by the clippers in la in a game they were never really in they blew a double digit lead to the jawless grizzlies and a home loss plus they lost at home to the nets and to the knicks although fine you can take the knicks one out of it because again that was the one beal left after like five minutes but I'm a little on the fence because, like I said, I think there have been a lot of encouraging signs with all three guys on the court, but you can't play with all three guys on the court for 48 minutes, and a lot of the deficiencies that you know we saw coming from the beginning, whether it's the depth, the defensive issues, all of that really drags their overall floor, ceiling, I don't know what you want to say, down, and... That's, again, us talking about the few games they've played with all three of those guys. For the majority of the time, they've been without at least one of them. And you could say, well, you know, that's not necessarily going to continue. And that's fair, you know, and we hope it doesn't. We hope these three guys are healthy and we can see what this team can do at full strength. But, you know what, I know we want to get through this quickly, so I don't have to rehash it all over again. But, like, if you're just going by probabilities, what they've been, especially in the cases of Durant and Beal, last few years, what they've been from a durability perspective, where they are at this stage of their career now that they're in their, you know, Beal is 30, Durant has been 30. like expecting it to all of a sudden the second half of the season be like, well, now Beal will just stay healthy. And now that he stays healthy, Durant will also be as healthy as he's been for the first half of the season, even though that actually goes against what he's looked like the last few years. Like it's just not realistic to expect. And so you can expect that there's going to be at least one more, not significant, but like, you know, Injury-related absence for at least one of these guys between now and the end of the year. It's not realistic. All three are going to stay perfectly healthy the whole time. And they barely have enough when all three guys are healthy to make the most of their talent, let alone when at least one of them's out of the lineup. So, I don't know, man. Like, they, they might be in some sort of trouble. Now, your definition of trouble, I guess, is, you know, what will determine that. But they're 19 and 18. They're eighth in the West. But they're closer to 12th in terms of games behind and all that um, than they are to 7th. And they're only one clear of 11th, you know, and that's the Jazz, who we've already talked about how hot they are. So the Suns are playing for their lives a little bit here more than they are looking like a contender through almost half the season. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned the overall numbers with those three guys on the floor. Even with the three of them out there together, they got smoked in that Clippers game. And I think what became very apparent is they just didn't have the size or the defensive personnel to match up with that 
specific team. Now that's a team that poses some unique challenges for most teams around the league, but you had Booker as the primary defender on Paul George. You had Grayson Allen as the primary on James Harden. And even at the other end, it was really just KD who was able to get it going. Cause I think you saw, they were just at a size and physicality disadvantage at pretty much every position. And you really saw how that was just a much easier and cleaner defensive matchup for the Clippers than it was for the Suns. And I think that's that's something that they're definitely going to have to reckon with, and it's an issue they're going to keep running into. They don't have really any good backup options for Nurkic. Like, I'm not crazy about Eubanks. Uh, Metu's given them good minutes, but he's undersized at the five. And Nurkic has had moments, but he's very inconsistent. And he has limitations that we've, you know, been over a hundred times that we don't need to rehash. But like you saw in that game, it's like you get gets the ball on the roll when the Clippers put two on the ball. And James Harden, whose defense has been great with the Clippers, but like it's James Harden pulling over as the low man. And Nurkic is immediately looking to pass out rather than, you know, trying to power through James Harden as the last line of defense. And like, it can be an issue at, at times, but the fact is when he's not out there, they're just very, very, very small. And in that game against the Clippers, they went teeny tiny with Beal, Booker, Eric Gordon, Grayson Allen, and KD for like kind of long stretches of that game. And it's just, I just don't think they can have any real success going to a, a lineup that small for consistent minutes so they have those challenges but you know on the plus side you do see like when those three guys are out there together and they're they have their spacing right it's just cavernous inside the arc when one of them is looking to attack right and, it, and it's doesn't have to be complicated stuff it's like booker running a main pick and roll with beal one pass away on the wing and kd in the corner and you'll get nail help coming over or two on the ball. And it can be, even if the pass isn't going to the roll, it can be like a throw ahead to Beal on the wing. And if it's nail help, there's a diagonal gap there that Beal can punch through. And then that help isn't coming from the strong side corner if KD is there. And Beal can usually get all the way to the cup that way. Just like simple basketball that can also be super effective. And then you also see like, what I would call the bad Beal, I guess. You know, like in that Clippers game, they have a possession where KD comes to screen for Beal and Kawhi is guarding KD. So Kawhi switches on to Brad Beal. And now instead of Beal immediately throwing the ball to KD, who has Amir Coffey guarding him after that switch, he dribbles in place for like eight seconds with Kawhi in front of him waiting for something else to happen. Finally, Josh Akogi comes up to screen for him and, and Harden is guarding Akogi. And at that, at that point, there's like five or six on the shot clock. Beal tries to attack and Harden just like steals the ball. I think Beal as like a second side attacker can be really deadly and that's a great role for him. I would nudge him more into doing that kind of stuff, attacking from the second side rather than too much of the sort of dribbling in place and, and trying to create from a standstill. Especially when, you know, Kawhi Leonard is the defender that you've now gotten switched on to you. Um, 
it's not even like a decision-making thing. I just think that he is best served in that role as somebody who's like attacking off of the catch as opposed to somebody who's like trying to create those initial advantages. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, look, we can check back in on them in like 10 games or so and see how it's going. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see because they are really up against it. And like, the, is this the team that is kind of like the most desperate in the league right now for things to turn around? hundred percent. And the thing with it is, is that they're the most desperate for things to turn around. But unlike some of the other desperate teams in win now mode, they can't really do anything. They have no first to trade. Okay. They have some extra seconds there, you know, staring at a lot of those more punitive tax uh, penalties coming in the next little while. Like it's, there was just not a lot this team can do to change their fortunes other than hope for pristine health. And even then hope that the supporting cast just miraculously elevates itself. And I will say like, if you wanted just the perfect kind of summary microcosm of, Oh, how's it going for the Suns in this experiment? It took less than half the season for Kevin Durant to have to come out and say, I don't want to be traded. That happened this week. He had to address a report about frustration. Be like, I don't want to be traded. I'm just well. At least he said I don't want to because that could have gone the other way. But just yeah, imagine if if you had told a Suns fan in October, they said, "Oh, like what's our season going to look like?" You know, like around the halfway point, they're going to be like, "Well, Kevin Durant's going to have to address rumors or reports that he is frustrated and might have wanted to trade already." (laughs) All right, Cash. I think we've more or less done it. Getting out of here in well under 80 minutes, but hit us with a fan shout-out before we get out of here. This week's fan shout-out goes out to Jeff Lowe in somewhere in eastern Ontario. Uh, didn't specify exactly where. He's been a follower of, our, follower of ours on Twitter for a long time and has supported our work. He reached out this week with, I don't even remember what the comment was about hearing it on Pound the Rock. And then I realized that uh, Jeff interacts with us a lot and we've actually never gotten him a fan shout out. So I reached out, asked for a bit more detail. And uh, yeah, Jeff just said he uh, always enjoys the show, also enjoys when he sees us pop up on other Raptors related shows, whether it's the Raptors show with Will Lou or Locked On Raptors, Locked On Raptors with Sean Woodley. So uh, yeah, Jeff, we appreciate you supporting our work here at The Score and also our guest appearances elsewhere and we very much appreciate you supporting pound the rock as long as you've had and i'll uh, just throw out there because jeff's twitter profile does indicate that he will cheer for any canadian in any sport and he's also a raptors fan so few people can be as thrilled with rj barrett's start to his raptors career as jeff Lowe, uh, given that he is a canadian playing for canada's team in the nba and uh, excelling so far through six games Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And quick reminder to all our listeners, if you would like a shout out on a future episode, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Joey underscore W. Cash is at Joseph Cacharo. Email us, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com, joe.wolfon at thescore.com. Hit up Cash on Instagram at joe underscore 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 Cash. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, what you don't. And we'll be sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. I do just want to do one more very quick shout out before we get out of here. Alex Wong, great patron of Pound the Rock, always spreading the gospel of PTR and just one of the absolute best dudes in the business. 
Uh, this is his last week on the Raptor show with Will Liu, and uh, just wanted to wish him all the best in his future endeavors and a congratulations on uh, on building a great show there at Sportsnet, and uh, just good luck with everything that's next, man. Uh, I know you're listening, so hope you know how much we appreciate you here at PTR headquarters. Realist one in the game. So with that, we're getting out of here in a tight 65. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. 